happens when you lose the power to evaluate your own life and get stuck in a mire of uncomfortable questions? That happens to actor Jakob Turner in Norbert Kastrein's novel Der Zweite Jakob, or The Second Jacob. He's an actor about to turn 60. There's supposed to be a biography about him. And for various reasons, he begins to sabotage the biography, to fight against being set in stone through the writing of it. But Jakob comes under growing pressure. The biography. His daughter's probing questions. As the book leaps through time and space, between Tyrol and Texas, Jakob Turner's dark side is revealed, as well as a secret he's been keeping ever since a film shoot on the US-Mexican border. There's a fatal accident, a series of unsolved killings of Mexican women, and a lot of toxic masculinity. Where's the line between fate and culpability? Norbert Kustrein gives the reader many threads to follow, but avoids outright moral judgment. Above all, I want them to be in a gray area within themselves, where they can still narrate themselves back towards the good side. But, at the same time, they're squinting at the other side, and they're aware of a wider and wider abyss. Norbert Kestrein's novel explores that abyss. A confessional story that doesn't provide answers, but keeps challenging the reader with new questions. A photograph of Fatih, daddy, looking serious beside his wife and children. Surrounded by guests, he looks like a stranger. Decades later, his daughter, Monica Helfer, says no one could ever read his expression. With this photo, Helfer begins a story about her father and her family. Daddy grew up poor in the countryside around Salzburg, the illegitimate child of a maid. As a boy, he was delicate and smaller than others. He discovered a love of books at an early age. It was how he rose in the world. He came from a modest background. Then he realized he could educate himself with books. He was incredibly educated, a walking encyclopedia. Then he thought, thanks to books, I'm somebody. And he became somebody, the director of a home for Germans left disabled by war. Here, in the highlands of Vorarlberg, he set up a library which only he used. For the children, the big house was paradise a place with so much space and so much nature. Daddy didn't talk much. He was distant, a mystery. When the children's mother died suddenly, they were sent to live with relatives, and Daddy disappeared. Where he went, and why, wasn't spoken about. Monica Helfer doesn't answer the question either. I always find it interesting when I read a book and find gaps that I'm invited to fill with my own thoughts. Daddy is a book about remembering, about conversations with sisters and a stepmother, and about a father who remained a stranger.
Much of Euro trash takes place on the road, a road traversing the past, memory, and an absurd present. It's tempting to draw parallels between its protagonist and its author Christian Kracht. For one thing, they share a name, and there's a Mrs. Kracht at the center of the book, too. It's definitely a farewell to my mother, who died two days after I finished the novel. It's also a tribute to her. She was exactly like the mother in the book, and of course, also nothing like her. The protagonist drives through Switzerland with his mother, who's addicted to pills and alcohol. A bag full of money and her artificial bowel outlet don't make things any easier. They argue a lot, and yet there are moments of touching intimacy. It's really about the impossibility of speaking, the decades-long perpetual attempt of reconciliation, and the failure, the failure determined long before. In a sense, Eurotrash is a continuation of Kracht's 1995 debut, Faserland. It picks up where the first book left off. The idea of family looms large in both, as does Kracht's playful treatment of his own biography. It isn't me, it's the narrator. And my mother isn't the narrator's mother either. Christian Kracht's novel reads like a farewell. It's also a descent into the depths of family and history. Thomas Kunst's protagonist finds himself stranded in a strange place, Zanschau is a backwater in Germany's northeast, where dropouts and recalcitrant dreamers practice strange rituals, including some involving inflatable plastic swans. The swans were really the only thing born of utter madness. I always have a great desire to infuriate the reader. Kunz's novel is a whirlwind of Dadaist ideas. It plays with a variety of forms and perspectives, as well as quotations and repetitions. Everything is driven by the language itself, a pleasing rejection of linear narrative. That would bore me to death. I just write differently. I don't have concepts or even ideas. The ideas develop out of the language, which means I never know what I'll be writing the next day. That's what gives me such an irrepressible desire to write at all. A hymn to the ways in which fantasy can conquer harsh reality. The village's firefighting reservoir can become the Indian Ocean, and Zanshol can be Zanzibar, a place of refuge and longing for people living precarious lives and searching for something new. How can it be that people so poor can be so happy? I wanted to show that. It's a utopian counter-narrative to our globalized present. It's wild, tender, and opinionated. Mitu Sanyal's protagonist grapples with defining the space between black and white. Nivedita is a student living in Dusseldorf. Like Sanyal herself, she's mixed race, with an Indian father and a Polish mother. She may not know who she is, but those around her have even less idea. 
It's happened to me all my life. People ask where I'm from, and I say, I don't know, Germany. And they say, no, where are you really from? Until I give them the answer they want. Nivedita runs a blog called Identity. She writes as a self-proclaimed mixed-race Wonder Woman about identity in betweenness and sex. Finally, at university, Nivedita finds someone to relate to, her Indian and extremely self-confident professor, Shahaswati. Until it's revealed that Shahaswati's identity is invented. She's white, the child of a dentist from Karlskua. Nivedita's world collapses, as does Shahaswati's worldwide following, with outrage on the streets and online. Both real and fictional social media users post messages of either anger or support. As for Nivedita, she moves into Shahaswati's fancy penthouse apartment, looking for answers. Is there such a thing as transracial identity as Shahaswati claims? Identity doesn't offer solutions, but food for thought and a lot of humor. My political awakening was in the 1980s, when everything was about world peace. And that didn't exactly give me a sense of political power. I do think that this idea that white people need to feel bad about being white is nonsense. But debate is a good thing. As long as it doesn't simply perpetuate divisions. And this year's winner is... Antje Ravik-Strubel für die blaue Frau. The novel Blau Frau, or Blue Woman, begins on the coast in Helsinki. That's where Adina, a young woman from the Czech Republic, has ended up. She's holed up in a concrete apartment building, and the reader senses that something terrible has happened. Only slowly does she reconnect with the outside world. She sees the street lamps outside her window, hears the rustling of the trees. This is a multi-layered novel about overcoming trauma. Adina was the victim of rape while she was doing an internship in Germany. While I was working on it, I noticed more and more just how many cases of sexual abuse and violence against women there were. I'm not the first to notice this, but it was becoming more and more apparent in the world around me. That influenced the writing. Antja Ravik Strubel spent eight years working on the novel, which combines political assertions with poetic description an enigmatic titular figure, the Blue Woman. The Blue Woman is connected to water, but also to ink. That's why she's blue. So again, it has something to do with writing. The writing is what bears witness. Antia Ravik Strubel's novel illuminates many dark corners of our world. With powerful language that inexorably pulls the reader in 